Though touted as perhaps the best in the world, the American medical system is filled with hypocrisies. Our healthcare is staggeringly expensive, yet one in six Americans has no health insurance. We have some of the, the most skilled physicians in the world, yet 100,000 patients die each year for medical errors. Going beyond sick care requires informed and empowered patients. This is achievable through price transparency and unbiased quality care that meets both public and private health insurance regulations. This podcast aims to explore the intricacies of quality patient care through thought-provoking conversations with providers, healthcare executives, corporate CEOs, technologists, and patients. We'll also seek to provide you with simplified actionable paths to feeling good and living well. Welcome to the Empowered Patient Podcast. This is an episode that's really meant to be a truly authentic conversation around health disparities and the effect of it itself. Um, how allies come together to really move the Black Lives Matter movement and how the impact of racism is had on the African-American communities. And we are today fortunate to have with us Priyanka. And Priyanka is very kind with her time. She's gonna give us a bit of background on, on herself and share a little bit why, why, why this, this topic matters to her. So Priyanka, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mo. Sure, sure. So tell me, tell, tell us a little bit about um, who you are. Sure. So uh, just really quickly, I'm a, what you would consider a third culture kid. Uh, it means that I have a lot of cultures influencing my background. My father's Indian. My mother is Hungarian. I'm first generation American. So I have all those different mixings of culture within me. But I also grew up in a pretty poor neighborhood in Mulberry, Florida. It's a small town. Uh, a lot of my friends were black and brown. Um, and brown, I mean Hispanic. I was probably the only, one of the only Indian people there. I didn't have a lot of like Indian friends. And there, there were certainly not very many Hungarians. And even if they were, like they probably wouldn't know that I am because I don't look that way. So I was always other. And I, you know, that otherness, I think, took me to some really interesting places. Uh, for example, where I am now in D.C. And since I've been in D.C., I've done a lot of different work. Um, I've done work in health policy. And even in that work, I remember, you know, writing legislation and advocating for health equity and accountability and things like that and health disparities. And then I went back to school. Well, I got, I, I went to school in Florida uh, for biology and political science. But then I went here uh, when I moved here for work. I also went and got my master's of public health at George Washington University. So when I did that, I ended up doing a couple of various like fellowships and trainings. And some of those were around health disparities. So I remember doing a project with the American Medical Group Association where I was looking at hypertension disparities between African-Americans and Caucasians. The data for other races was very, um, it was very minimal and it was not clean and it was very hard to actually get some good counts. So I, I could only get the best counts for blacks and whites. And I then used like a prediction tool that the CDC had created to see how well the prediction 
matched up, the prediction for hypertension matched up with the actual diagnoses. And it was quite interesting what we found there. Um, and then, you know, from there, I ended up consulting for the VA Veterans Affairs. So I worked on behalf of our uh, men and women in uniform. So I know what that's about. I understand their life. Many of them actually go into law enforcement um, or have come from law enforcement. So I understand like some of the things that they go through and PTSD and multiple complex health conditions. And we did a lot of really great work there. And now I work for ASTHO, which is the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. Um, we work with all of our health and, well, all of our state and territorial health agencies. So I've been very busy since COVID began, um, working on collecting data and using technology and systems to kind of track this thing and to manage cases. And within that, also understanding how certain populations don't have access to the education or the testing or the masks, or even just, you know, other things. And so you, all of that comes to a head now where I'm actually on the front lines protesting in DC against racism and for the Black Lives Matter movement. And we're like, probably the most amount of people have been gathering since COVID, but it's, but it's because something like the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many other names, we can go down the list, is still happening, even in the midst of a global pandemic which tells me our global pandemic of like the biggest issue of concern is still racism because it can still happen when the world has, is already in, in shambles because of a virus. So that is the one we need to, to address. And then we can address all these other things. Like COVID is just another name for another thing that affects the black and brown community and particularly the black community, just like all the other things do. But people are dying. When people are dying at the hands of people who are supposed to protect us, like, that is the issue and yeah absolutely and and the the thing is that it dates back to 400 years ago right and it's still still a thing hasn't changed we see how we see out there protesters like yourself are out there protesting for laws that should be protecting us citizens um and those yeah. laws there's reasonableness right so the, there's a policy out there that says that give the police department determination, how to determine reasonableness. Whether they, the police feel as though the person who they, they would think is a subject that is, should, should arrest, um, they, can, they can exercise certain rights. They can exercise certain, certain ways to arrest them. Whether that is a physical push or abuse or they feel attacked, that reasonableness definition is 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 left way too open for the for the police to make a determin, determination, and that's what that's usually what leads to non convictions, right? That doesn't happen often. So that itself needs that policy change needs to happen. Um, so I'm glad you bring that up. Training, honestly, Mo, like training, like cops. There's so many times that they didn't know what they were doing, and they're like, "Who's doing this? Who's got this?" Who's arresting, who arrested this girl? Or who did that? Or what do we do now? Oh, I don't know, we're just figuring it out. Like there's so much lack of training. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. So how do, we, how do we move on to like training itself? What are the, the tools? So we, we know that we're, we're currently active protesting. Protesting is currently happening. Um, allies like yourself, Brown and Brown and Black are in the front line, really letting their voice be heard. 
So what's to come from that? Also, before you answer that, how has your, how, how has your experience been since this protesting has occurred last week and, and, and over the weekend as well? What, is it your, what have your experience been? So I'll answer, yeah, I'll answer the first one. Like, where do we go from here? Um, there's obviously things that need to happen. And there have been reports already, you know, in, under the Obama administration about like policing and, and community uh, engagement with police and law enforcement to improve that. Interestingly enough, I actually, in my public health role, in my day job, I work with law enforcement officers on violence prevention. Ironically, I actually told this to the cops who arrested me um, the other day for peacefully protesting. I was like, you know, I work with some of your brothers and sisters in uniform in Milwaukee and in Atlanta. Like, this is wild to me that this is happening because we work on violence prevention. So I think the thing is, for those particular projects that I'm working on, it is very much data that's being collected from law enforcement and from hospitals and from public health and merging that together to show where pockets of violence occur. And then bringing that to the community to understand further qualitatively, like why is there violence happening there? And what does the community wanna do about it? What are they asking to be done about it versus the police just coming in and doing their thing? Again, how well that happens in practice, I'm not sure because the project is still underway. But I think if you can have it from the lens and the ownership of a community coming together as a, as a coalition or organizing and saying, oh, we understand why this is happening. Or, well, actually we have, you know, these, we have these people in our community who are part of a gang or we have this going on or, well, people are stealing because they have no money because they got fired and all these things and unemployment is an issue. Like, if you really want to solve this, let's get some jobs here. So it's, it's really taking this and allowing the community to define it much more than authority figures to come in and say, oh, this is the problem. I'm going to fix it this way. Mm -hmm. I think that's the first part. And a lot of police are not trained even for that or, or trained to deal with people who are in anguish and who are hurting and who are in pain. They are trained to just eliminate the threat. And if they think you're a threat, which is very subjective, they're going to eliminate you in whatever way that's, that is. Or if they think you're going to spark other movements, they're going to want to eliminate that. They, they want you to run away. They want you to go home or they want to stomp you out. So, and I experienced all of that with the protesting. So where am I at today? Uh, I am processing a lot, just like so many other young people who are on the front lines as well. They're, most people were younger than me. I'm 29. Most people were in their early 20s. There were a couple people who just graduated high school. And I just remember, it, it breaks my heart. I remember this one like young black kid. He just graduated from high school. And I asked him his name. He's like, Adam. And he wants to do computer engineering. You know, bright kid, right? Just graduated high school. And he's just looking at the cops. And he's crying. He's like, this is so Sad. This is so sad. Why are you doing this? This is so, so, so wrong. And it just broke my heart. And it's, would I do this again? Would I, I've gotten arrested. I've, I put myself at risk with COVID. I got hurt. I got beat by police. Like all of these horrible things that happen to, you know, the black community all the time. Like I cannot sit in my apartment and just sit and know that that's happening. So I'm processing because it's really traumatic 
and all these kids, like some of them have never seen it. They've heard about it. They know about it. They're aware. But even Adam like had not really seen it like up front and close. Like he, he's this bright kid, always like going through school. Parents want to make sure he's the best future ahead of him. So, so many kids, first time that they had gotten beaten by police, first time that they had gotten pepper sprayed, tear gas. For some of them, it wasn't. They like been here around the block and they're just mad now. But it's just, there's so much trauma that's happening and that's a lot to unpack. And, you know, I just got connected with a therapist. I was really hesitant to go to therapy. I know mental health care is, there's huge disparities for black and brown folks, particularly black folks, within even getting mental health. And it's hard because you have to trust someone to guide you through these emotions and these feelings and the trauma. And there's so much trauma that are, uh, that black people face all the time, just living. So it's, it's, it's really hard to find someone that you can trust who can understand the levels of trauma that you're going through. And I had to understand that. I just started therapy two weeks ago. So, and I don't mind saying it because it's, it's worked actually. Really? Um, this, uh, this, this, uh, the former colleague of mine, uh, he's also black. Um, he's mixed, but he's black. And he, uh, he, it took him a while to get through therapy. And we were talking, he's like, you know what? I'm going to connect you to my therapist because she's worked for me and it's really been helping me. And I understand that there's a lot of barriers. So here you go, here's her name you know, give her a call. And that's how I got connected. And um, I trusted him. Like he's like an older brother to me. So I trusted him and his guidance. And maybe that's what it's about. It's just these referrals and understanding. But I, that's helped me a lot process all these things and all the trauma we've been dealing with. And it's going to take time, right? It's not a one and done. Um, So I'm so glad that you are pausing and reaching out to resources that can help and your experience because trauma is real um trauma has has been experienced by us black and brown people for quite some time slavery we never went through the correct form of healing um our black and brown brothers have have been locked up they come out of they come out of prison and they and then there's no employment and now you're telling them they have, they've, they've gone to jail for minimal stuff, um, a traffic violation. They get, put, they get put to jail. They usually come out and now they have a record and now they can get employment. So what, what else you're usually left to do? If you can get an employment, you get back into the system. Um, yep. So the system has been set up for black men to fail. Black and brown people mainly to fail. Um, but only black males, like that's, let's just call it out like it's of everybody it's blackmail and those were the first people who were being arrested that night on swan street they were taking blackmails first and it it, it makes total sense because i mean you take this this case in milwaukee right this this is i think i believe this was milwaukee where the cnn reporters were out there um reporting and the white reporter was was part of the crew um with the black reporter then that black reporter got, got got handcuffed so you see that the spirit is that that already exists and this is cnn and cool and and this is so it doesn't matter right your social class that you're in you can be the, the wealthiest and still experience um racism and racism really is a wear and tear on the black man's mind um and we tend to not talk and discuss it 
return to the impact of it itself. I, for my, I, for example, um, because of police brutality, I've limited my chances of taking transportation. Right? I don't drive my car anymore. I park my car in the in, in the garage and it stays there. So I take public transportation because I don't I, I don't want to get pulled over and the consequences that I relate to getting pulled over. I bike a lot. So now I bike. Um, I, I instead of me driving to my neighborhood to go one because um, I I. I just like Ahmed that, that got killed in, in Georgia. I do a lot of running, um, but now I don't do much running outside. I, go, I run to the track and, and, run, uh, and run there because it's more safer, right? A cop is not gonna go yeah. disturb me there. So literally I'm adjusting my lifestyle because of police, police brutality. And that's the sad part that, hey, how can we move on from here? What, what do we need to do? as black men and brown people, how, what needs to change? Um, you, talk, you talk about health, health disparities, right? One of the data points that you mentioned is, where are the pockets, pockets of violence that's happening in, in the neighborhood from that, that data that you study? Because I'm interested to learn that, right? When you look at, when you look at a neighborhood, where are the pockets of data? Of, um, what, what's the data telling us that here's where violence tends to happen the most? What did you learn? Yeah, for the violence prevention project, and again, it's still like ongoing, and yeah. we're still understanding what it is actually showing. Um, but it stems out of a model that came from the UK called the Cardiff model for violence prevention. You can look it up. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of websites on CDC and otherwise. Um, in in some cases, like in Milwaukee, some of the biggest problems are domestic violence. And a lot of that stems back to like substance use and things like that. So that was interesting to see. And they have a lot more community. They're very entrenched in the community. They've been, um, you know, doing this violence prevention work for a couple of years now, five or so. In Atlanta, it's a little bit newer than that. And part of it is kind of just understanding why. Um, so there were a couple of pockets where it may have been like an illegal gambling area. So there was some violence happening there or where there were a couple of vagrants staying in some abandoned buildings and there was some violence happening there. It's very hard to understand why, and I haven't been able to understand why yet, because again, some of that data is still being collected. What it did show though, is that law enforcement has a picture of some areas of violence and the hospital is gathering, um, this, the trauma centers and the hospitals in the downtown area of Atlanta have another story to tell and they don't always match up. You may have the law enforcement have violence here and the hospital is like, well, actually this is where we're getting most of our cases. This is where the violence is happening. And they're trying to understand why, like why is it shifting from there to there? Or do we have the wrong idea of violence or what's a bigger threat? And the one other thing I'll say is that there are a lot of homeless people in Atlanta as well. Like I've, I've worked down there and that to me, and a lot of them are black, that to me is wild. Like as a, as a city that has so many black professionals, it is astounding how many of the how many of the population are homeless who are black. And I don't I don't want to say that homeless people are causing violence. We don't know, but they certainly don't have very great conditions to live in. And it continues to make me wonder about COVID as well. Like they're like, what about that population? How are we how are we addressing that? Um, and in addition, like prices have gone up. So you, you see things like gentrification and you see things like 
different companies coming in and making rent very difficult, very high. And this happened in Oakland, in California, where the rent was just enormous. And so the homeless population increased by like three, three times or pro probably more now. The last time I saw it a couple months ago, it was three times the rate it was uh, the year before. And now it's even more. And that's because you have your big tech companies who are creating this really um, very difficult uh, place to live in because of the cost of living. And they're making it very difficult for these people to get jobs too. So I know that there's some talk and movement to make Atlanta like that, to make Atlanta like a Silicon Valley-esque type of place. I think we need to be really careful with that because of what's happened in places like Oakland and San Francisco and places like Austin, Texas, and a couple of other places in the US that have done that, Seattle even. I think we need to be really, really careful about how we do this. And it has to be very much where are where are our people at? Like, how well do they know technology? I can tell you a lot of people like Adam, who was crying the other day, wants to do computer engineering. Are we giving people like that a chance? Are we giving them internships? Are we hooking them up with resources and opportunities to enhance their skills so that they can be competitive? Are we hiring them, even though they may not be com as competitive, because they didn't go to the, the Harvards or the MITs or whatever of the world, but they've learned it and they're, they're hardworking and they have... They have the expertise of understanding what's actually wrong with the community. That's the thing. You see so many tech companies now trying to address that. and They don't really understand. And they're taking our data and we're giving it to them freely, all this qualitative data. It's all, it's all our, our, our answers, our anecdotes, our interviews. They're interviewing us and we don't even realize it. And we're just giving it to them. And I'm a data person, so I'm big on that. I'm like, yo, 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 we don't, maybe we need to save that for ourselves. Like, I really think what we need to do is band together and build our own thing. And then, then all those people who have those companies can come, come to us if they want to work with us. We've got our things set up here, mm -hmm. our Wakanda, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So I, you, made, you, made, you made a couple of good points there. So one of the, the points is you mentioned the police department and the hospital difference in data, right? where there's yeah. pockets of violence um, that occurs and what influences that violence. At least even, you're in, I, lived in, I lived in Atlanta for a couple of years, right, before I moved down here to D.C. But you check, you check out D.C. D.C. had been impacted by the opioid epidemic. Yeah. The opioid epidemic is highly influenced by um, when, 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 when it when you when you get addicted to a medication, that usually is a transfer of pain, right? You're trying to heal, partly okay. transfer of pain, but you you take you take it back as well. This is trauma. So a lot of the patients I worked with a hospital, um, uh, three about four or five three clinics. One clinic that has about three three locations locations in in the DMV area, and you take it back to the the patient population, these are people that were in prison before. They come back and now they are addicted to opioid. Some of them may, may be addicted to, to coke, coke, but the type of treatments that they were prescribing for these individuals are prison, right? And so these people are going back to prison instead of increasing treatment centers. You mentioned mental health right <laughs> mental health is one thing that's so crucial in the for the black neighborhood and it's never addressed it's still yeah. addressed properly the american psychiatry association says one in three 
African-American sick mental health care that they, they don't get. And that's mind boggling. Uh, I understand why it's a, it's a big barrier. Like I tried to go through my insurance and I was getting the runaround and I tried to call psychologists myself and I barely got folks to come get back to me. And then they're like, Oh, well, we don't take your insurance and it's going to be X hundred dollars. And I'm like, I can't afford hundreds of dollars of this every time. Like this is really expensive. And what do you mean my insurance? I got to deal with my insurance. And it's, it was the, I was getting the runaround. And yeah. finally I, you know, um, you know, this person who, who I consider a brother told me about his therapist and she's like, I'll work with you. Like we'll, we'll work on the insurance thing, but like, what's, what's a number you can do? Because I can tell that you're dealing with a lot of trauma. I want to help you. And I specialize in that. And we were able to, have, you know, have a good session. The first session of course was free. We've actually done two sessions. She hasn't even charged me yet. She's like, we'll worry about that later. Like I want to give you the, the help you need. So I, I loved that. I was like, wow, I really respect that. And, and that's excellent for you to mention. I think in that community, I'm so glad you're going to specialize, someone that understands trauma. And yeah. I understand black and brown trauma. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to pause to say that again. Someone that understands black and brown trauma. Because you can get a therapist um, that's outside the community, but really doesn't specialize in that area. So they don't relate. Yep. And they can provide advice that allow you to be able to do self-reflection and be able to go through in the healing process. So because they won't understand when they're pushing too much or when they're taking too much of a step. They won't understand those nuances. Exactly. And it's more public textbook information that they will provide to you. So how do we, you mean, there, there, there are certain things that you're going to clearly are going through right now as, as an ally. Um, fighting on the, on the phone line, you see gun violence clearly is a big issue. But it, as far as health disparities is concerned, let's position this to health disparities. Now in the South, right, it's an issue with health disparities in the South. And, I'm not, and we, we can have this conversation in D.C. as well. In the South, Mississippi is a big state in the South, and mm -hmm. they have had their share of bad luck with health disparities. <laughs> um, they're mostly, the expansion of Medicaid has been kind of held off by politics in, in the South. Mm -hmm. it, we know why Medicaid exists. Medicaid exists for a couple of reasons. You can probably um, tell us some of those reasons. It, it exists for, for people that are poor to be able to gain access to care. Now, if you're going to block that stuff, why, what can the people in the South and in, in minority neighborhoods, as you're talking price sensitivity, right? That's another issue. You, you call it around. And you're probably somebody that makes good money and you call around, but price sensitivity is an issue. How do you think policies need to change to increase access to care in black and brown communities? Yeah, so it starts with leadership. Honestly, there are in so many states, the expansion of Medicaid has been blocked by leaders, whether they're actual Medicaid directors, health officials, or governors, there's blocking. And it's because it's gonna cost more money and they don't wanna spend the money there. 
And they also don't want the surges that would be associated with that because Medicaid, Medicaid exists whether or not like you want to block it. Like it, it's out there. You can have Medicaid and be in a state that hasn't expanded. The expansion just lets you get more services for what you're getting. Like it allows you to get, you know, potentially mental health care. It allows you to get dental care. Like it allows for all other things besides just a primary care visit. So it's so important because it's not just one thing that makes up our health. It's a couple of other things and they're all connected. They're part of the same body. You know, if you have dental issues and they don't get taken care of, you're going to experience pain. You're going to experience nerve issues and heart issues because when dental pain gets really to a point where, you know, your teeth are obsessing or decaying, they start to infect that bacteria starts to infect your nerve system and other, other parts of your body and affects your heart. So people can die from teeth issues, right? Mm -hmm. People don't know that though. So mm -hmm. expansion of Medicaid just allows you to address so many other things in your healthcare. But beyond that, it's also for disabled people, people who they are in pain. Maybe they got shot, maybe other things happen and they can't, work the same job that they used to. Maybe they were in a horrible accident. They can't work the same job that they used to be able to work. And so now they don't have that income. So they can't pay for care. They can't pay for rehab or physical therapy. The insurance is giving them the runaround. It's going to cost a lot more money. And then, oh, and they don't have Medicaid. Like they thought they could use the Medicaid, but this is not a med. This provider doesn't accept Medicaid. So then it's a lot of running around. And when you're trying to make money and you're trying to put food on the table, like you don't have time to do all that stuff. You just don't like you got to make money to put food on the table and you need to find a job. And then that's why people get desperate because they don't have any other outlets. It just makes me so mad that we don't understand where we're going around and biting our own tails and we're not providing opportunities for people to make those meaningful incomes. And we're expecting so much while we're not giving them opportunities to, to do that. Like I know I've dealt with this myself where I've been so frustrated with our healthcare system because of how long it took for me to get care, how long it took for me to find a provider who wouldn't cost an arm and a leg. And I just get fed up with it because I'm trying to make money over here so I can live and eat and pay rent, which is really expensive in DC. I don't have time to spend hours on the phone trying to figure this out. If I can't do that, can you imagine all these other people who are like just trying to make a, a, you know, trying to have a meal? Like it's too much and we're making it too hard and it shouldn't be this hard to get care. So it's really starts at the leadership level. They might be like, oh yeah, you can just do this thing. It's really not that easy for us. It really isn't. You're not getting it. And, and that's the frustrating part. I mean, you talk, you, you talk, I know my, I know from, from, from my point of view, my mom in Ohio, my stepmother in Ohio, um, walks, walks, um, as a nurse, she she worked for Ohio state and for herself, she was working as a nurse, so we were getting care through, through her um, because she worked at Ohio State, so we were getting access to, access to care. Then she experienced uh, more of a health, her health condition. Um, she got kicked by a patient um, while she was taking care of that patient. Um, it, was yeah. it was a mental, mental health um, um, unit, and she literally got kicked and that kind of put that place on, 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 on disability. Um, so imagine the strength that then that caused for her, um, the family to get access to care now, because we all will We are all relying on Ohio State to get care. Um, and so now it's like the go around the pricing. We got to figure that thing out. 
um, it gets frustrating. It is really, really frustrating. And this is where if somebody like myself was getting access to a good healthcare um, provision from Ohio State, imagine when, well, someone else that doesn't have that access, right? The impact that they're, they're experiencing. And then they got to just show up in pain or whatever and just got to put a smile on. And that, the, the, the thing is, like, even in amidst the pain, even amidst the police brutality, like, it was, there were so many, um, you know, so many of, of our black brothers and sisters who would just make a joke or crack a smile because it's all you have left when people will try to break your spirit, break you, like, in all these ways, and expect so much, like, that's all we have left. And when you take that away, then, yeah, then you have a hopeless person. And, and are we really trying to do that? Like, we, we have all these causes of saving the world. We can't even look in our freaking backyard to realize what we're doing. And it's just sad. It's, it, you know, it's, it's just sad. But, and, and yet we still expect Oh, like you, I bet you if someone of privilege had to go through that, it'd be the end of the world. They'd have to have like all the stops put out for them, you know? And we still have to maintain our resilience and our strength and go back to work every day when it's so hard, when we have to deal with the racism and the slights and the embarrassments and all of that. I mean, look at privilege, COVID-19. And this, uh, this might have been, I'm not sure if it was in Michigan, but a couple of, um, Caucasian gentlemen went up, went up um, to the courthouse to demand that we, 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 we open. Um, and they had guns. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they had AK-47s. They had guns demanding that we reopen. Um, and they were literally spitting in, 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 in the front of police. And police were doing nothing about it. Of course. They're white. Yeah, of course not. And imagine a black, a black, black individual is trying to do that. <laughs> There's no way. And There's that, no way. The cop would gun him down before he made it all the way that far. I saw that. I saw there was a black photographer who got pushed away. And I saw a white photographer right up and close to the police. Police didn't do nothing. This was two days ago in D.C. I'm from the South. I'm used to seeing racism. I'm used to being mistaken for black, actually, quite often, even though I'm not. And I'll correct them. I'm like, I'm not. But it doesn't matter. Like, whatever. Same. I've literally gotten told same difference from people in the South. People in the South are very racist, openly. In D.C., like, I was really, when I first came here, I was like, wow, people are, like, not racist. And, like, they're much more open-minded. And there's more people who look like me. And they're educated. And we're like, Yes, this is awesome, but I have experienced so much racism openly in the past like two weeks. It is insane. Clearly, it's been hiding. Like people are hiding it, and that's the thing. Even in the places that seem most progressive, there are a couple bad apples, and people protecting those bad apples. Mm, mm. So now you you mentioned trauma. So we we I know we 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 talk trauma a bit, and trauma is so deeply rooted in the community and healing need to truly take place but how do we get how do we get access to care because trauma and you're experiencing it right now i'm i've gone through my set of trauma i'm adjusting my entire life because of police brutality right (laughs) (laughs) and that's 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 so frustrating that i as a black man who hasn't caused any harm to a police 
I've got to adjust my entire life just so that I can prevent being locked up, getting in prison, or getting killed. And that's, that's heartbreaking that I have to adjust. And then a white man, a white male is going to get up and just get up and get in their car and go about their day. But I have to worry about that. And, I've, and, and my, my future kids are going to have to worry about that too. Yeah. Yeah, it's really upsetting. It's, so you're saying, what, what can we do for the community? Correct. Well, again, I think it starts with us. I think we're going to be the ones to solve our problems. And it does help. It, it does ha uh, start with allies, too. I think because you guys have been, like, beaten and downtrodden and all of these things, like, it is so hard to climb out of that. And so you do, in, in those instances, like, how can we as allies help you? Like, that's my question I keep asking. Like, mm -hmm. how can I help you? What do you want from me? Like, what can I do? Um, and that's, that's how it starts is, like, us asking and then bringing those resources to bear. We, we have to, just like how we do COVID, like, we need to make them free. I, I don't really know what to say other than just make them available. Like, go there and make them available. And then, like, then you can build up to, like, okay, now we can charge for them. Or now that we've healed this, like, now there's these things. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not an amazing model because who's going to pay for that at the end of the day? The government really should, but they don't. And then they use it in bad ways. So, like, it's hard to trust. Some nonprofits will do that, and those can be trusted sometimes. It's just, it really depends on who's in leadership, though. Like, you have to make sure you've got a sound leader who's, like, steering the ship. But it really is going to start with us. It's going to start with those of us who have the privilege, who are Black, who have the privilege to get educated, um, who have the privilege to, to get the degrees and things like that. It's going to mean us going back and sharing that and spreading some hope and some light. And Obama already started that. To be honest, if you look at his campaign, Believe, Hope, he already started in, instilling that light in the community so that they felt there is hope for me. My brother's keeper is an initiative. Obama Foundation is another thing. I'm really excited to see where they, they take some of the work, you know, here in the next couple of years. Like it's, it's those organizations. It's just, the thing is we're so, um, we're still so like separated and siloed. We need to come together. We're going to have the most strength in numbers. And I think we got to make these things available. We just, where are you? That's, it's just as simple as that. Where are you at? We've got to make this meet where you're at. Otherwise it's not going to work. And once we meet where you're at, then you can rise to the occasion. Then you have the light in you. Then you have the motivation and you have the tools and the resources you need to be light to other people. And we keep paying it forward in that way. Like right now we need to stop all this money and payment and this and barriers and educate. It's too much. Like we need to meet the communities where they're at. And we're not doing a good job of that. And, and you're and, and you mentioning that. So we, let's talk um, Affordable Care Act. Uh, yeah. So Obama began a good thing, Affordable Care Act, which expanded um, healthcare to 20, 20 million people that were uninsured before. Um, of that 20 million, million people, 2.8 2. 8 million of that were African-American male, um, African-American um, that have access to care now that were otherwise uninsured. The undoing of, of um, ACA <laughs> has been a push by Republican and of course, our Democrat party and the person in leadership, um, the administration in leadership right now. What's what's gonna what what's what has to change? Because he clearly does don't believe um, in Affordable Care Act. 
He wants on doing all that. But we're seeing that there have been increase of access to care as a result of Affordable Care Act. 2.8 million African-American getting access to health care because of that act. Otherwise, they will be uninsured. But now it's the undoing. Yeah. And, then, and then there's the, the foot, foot, foot lock on a hold on expansion of uh, Medicaid, Medicaid, uh, Medicaid expansion. So where do, where do we start? <laughs> Affordable Care Act is so many more things than just healthcare. It's also healthcare workforce. So it's providing funding for more diverse physicians, nurses, and other allied health professionals. There's a lot in there on that. I remember being part of that. Um, yeah. There's a lot in there about addressing health disparities and increasing the research dollars behind it. Yep. And for all, all these other conditions like sickle cell and sarcoidosis and a couple of others that really impact the black community very negatively that we don't have enough research on. Um, there's a lot in there. It's not just healthcare. So if you dismantle one thing, you're dismantling so many other things. Like bills of that size have a lot of stuff in them. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing people need to understand. There are other bills out there though. Um, I remember when I used to work in policy, there was one called HIA, the Health Equity and Accountability Act. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I was part of, of that movement, um, I remember write, writing like bill language two years in a row. It never got passed, but it got introduced in the house. It got like 50, 60, 70, one year, even 80 co-sponsors, which was awesome. It just didn't result in anything. Like it got stopped by the Senate or if it wasn't the Senate, it was the house. Or if it wasn't that, it was the president. Like, well, when Trump was in office. Um, so, you know, I think it's tough because we try to do these laws and these legislation and it is slow and government is designed to be very slow. And the only way you're going to get meaningful change, one is if you elect leaders. So voting is really important. I know people are really disillusioned with, with that, but you gotta vote. You gotta vote for people who are gonna put your people up and for people who are going to want more people like you in, in the con congressional halls, in the White House, in the federal agencies. We need that. We need more of us out there. I'm very lonely up here, okay? Like, I've worked in policy. I've worked now for now state and territorial health governments. Like, you know, so I understand how they work. It's very lonely. There are not very many people of color. I'm not even black. So it's even less of you guys. So that's not okay. So we need more of us up there. Um, but that's going to be take some time. And that's frustrating. I get it. So we need to work with our nonprofits. We need to work with our um, advocacy organizations. That's, that's kind of how I started in policies. I started with a lot of advocacy organizations, most of whom are run by white people or have a lot of white people in leadership. We need more of us there too. Like those people are the ones, you know, knocking on Congress's doors, writing the letters, calling them nonstop. You got to do this. You got to do something. You got to do something. We're going to keep bothering you. We're going to keep bothering you. We got to do that. And activism also looks like what we're doing right now in DC. Like we, because of what happened on Tuesday was such a debacle and the news was capturing all of it. And there were so many people watching and videoing and it's gone viral mm -hmm. because of that night. And that night you only had a couple of States protesting since that night, all 50 States are protesting or have protests in 18 countries and counting are also doing their own protests. That is the kind of worldwide change. It's the largest worldwide civil rights movement ever. That is exactly what we need. That is activism. If we keep saying, no, you've got to change it, you've got to change it, you've got to change it, and more and more and more people are saying that, soon we're going to be able to look around and be like, oh, it's, it's all of us. Like, 
we actually outnumber them. Now we should work together now, you know? So it's, it's part of that. I think the working together is still going to take some time because we haven't been here before. It's, I mean, maybe we were like thousands of years ago, but we haven't been here for a long time. So it's going to, it's going to take a lot of organizing and we're trying to do that. Like I have several WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups, um, however we're able to use technology or whatever to gather. I've been on a lot of phone calls. So we're just, we're trying to organize ourselves. I personally am trying to go back actually to my hometown in Mulberry in Polk County and I'm trying to like spread some light there and some education there to people and just kind of do these movements. And, um, you know, one example that I'm going to do in July is actually with a couple of mothers um, and how we talk about race to children, mm -hmm. race them and how we prepare our children to understand what that is. Um, and so that's something that we'll probably do on like Zoom or Facebook Live and just record it and talk about it in a very creative way. Um, and I think do, just small things like that are going to add up. Like that might not be my full life's work, but I'm going to do it with this young woman who's very passionate about this. She wants to do this. And maybe she'll be this, the, the, the spark that lights the flame for mothers all over the U.S. and in the world to do this kind of work, right? And then I want to go to other places too. Like I'm writing a book about traveling, but it's so much more than that. I'm realizing now it's, it's more about what you're doing when you're in these places, how you're connecting with people, what you're giving back, what you're sparking. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I want to do with this thing. I mean, I still have my day job because I, again, I, I always feel like I need to keep a finger on the table, like just a little bit. Like I can't get fully in there because I'll get lost and I'll get like beaten down mentally and physically, literally this week. But, you know, I got to keep my finger on the table because I got to understand what they're talking about. So I can be like, hey, y'all. They're talking about that over there. Like, we need to do something. We need to do something. Um, yeah, I know that that's a lot, but it's, it's kind of what it is. And and voting, you know, organizing, active, being an activist, so important right now. Like your silence, we can we can we can see we can see you. Those who are being silent right now, we can see you. And I'm I'm honestly disappointed by what I'm seeing. For some of the people that were really vocal and really were. I'm kind of disappointed by who's not speaking up. Uh, at least um, a bit of a lie. Um, con Congress unanimously passed on a federal level, passed um, a law that lynching is, is now a criminal law, a criminal act. Really? Just now? Mm -hmm. I know this I should have been done 400 years ago, <laughs> but this is it. Um, Activism, right? The power of activism. That yeah. is enough. For George Floyd, in, in like a couple days, there were protests everywhere. We got justice for George Floyd, not just the one officer, but all four. In addition, like, let's go down the line. Let's go down the line. Breonna Taylor, let's go down the line. And, and that's, those are things that need to move the needle. And you mentioned a couple of things there. You said vote. Not, don't only vote on a, on, the presidential elections, but vote on a local level. Because those individuals, the Senate, if the Senate disapproves, as you were mentioning, you'd send a bill out there, the Senate says no, Congress says no. The president can do so much, right? In his buying. Or Obama, the reason why he couldn't do much, because Democrats were not taking over, they didn't take over the Congress. They, they yeah. didn't have full control of both Congress or, um, and so, why should people need to think through your local leaders matter? 
state, counties matter. You need to take some time to learn about them because they're the one that actually write your policies and get, send you to prison. They're the one that sent you to prison. Um, convictions are not going to happen because the local policies are not changed. Convictions yeah. will only I mean, happen. That in DC, where DC Mayor Bowser instituted curfew, she arrested people who broke the curfew, even people who didn't know about it. I was one of them. And I was like, really, can someone tweet at her right now and ask her to lift the curfew right now? Like, we're a bunch of kids and we want to go home. And her cops have now boxed us in and we can't go anywhere. We would love to all go home now. There was a moment where we all were like, okay, we're done. We were about to head back home. And then the cops boxed us in. And I'm like, seriously? Mm. And, and it's just like, lift the curfew. The next night she did it and thousands of people came out. They didn't arrest anyone because they couldn't. It was too many people. Next night, 11 p.m. Now, no curfew. If, the, if policies can, like, that was days. Every day there was a new thing. Seriously, if it can happen that quickly, I know it can happen. So, I know, you've got a Black Lives Matter plaza, you change a street sign? Really? We can do that? I didn't know. Oh, shoot. Like, can we do other things, please? Is it that easy? It is. It is. It is that easy, but it's literally handing you a carrot and said, hey, you should, you should be satisfied with a little carrot because we actually give, gave you the right to vote. Be it's satisfied damaged, with black men. So black control. men, be satisfied, satisfied with that. Don't, I mean, really calm down. We, you ain't going to get full right. And that's the issue. We, want, we don't want revenge. We just want equality. Equality for men and women. Equality for all. Just that. If I, if you, 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 you and I had talked earlier that if you're applying for a good job, let that pay be equal as a, as a male counterpart. With the same skill set, yeah. there shouldn't be any difference. And it goes yeah, for a black so, male. Like, I will make this for it all the time. And I have data. I'm a data girl. And I will show the metrics and I will still get told, you got to wait. I get told I'm too young. I think people can use that because I am young, but I, I don't even say my age in the workplace anymore. I'm like, I just look this way, okay? Black and brown don't crack, okay? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, uh, um, but no, I get told like, oh, your time is coming. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. I've been making the case for two years now. You know I pull my weight like 10 times more than this person who just got promoted who's white. Lovely. I can see you. And, and that's, that, those are the things that need to change, right? On, even on a corporate level, decision makers need to actually, don't, this counts are nice. Your voice is nice, but what are you doing in leadership? Are you bringing brown and black up there to make those decisions, right? To make peer decisions, to make promotion, promotional decisions. Um, because where, where there's no voice at the table, there's no leadership at the table, no voice that represents your voice, then your voice is canceled. Yeah, the, uh, the, or just not regarded. People make decisions anyway. They move really fast. This is the issue. And you can't even get coaching. So these are, these are the things that really, I think, beyond just policy change, workplace, workplace leadership must change as well. Um, to give opportunities for people like ourselves to be able to have equity. Nothing more, but just equity to be considered as smart and be paid for our ingenuity. I have, so <laughs> I was, I, I, I've been on calls where 
people I'm having a conversation, they're like, oh, you're in tech. You own a, you own a company, a telehealth and wellness company. Is it yeah. yours? I've been asked that question. Is oh, it oh yours? <laughs> okay. Like, yeah. who's me? <laughs> I'm supposed to be giving birth. So that motivated me to create this. Yes, it's mine. Um, so that's the constant frustration you get. Um, and you ask that all the time. And you're never trusted. Um, I know Thank I know. there's an accelerator program that I Thank went you. through in Virginia, right? An accelerator program in Virginia. And they were out, out there, investors are questioning, is it yours? Uh, have you built it? I was like, yeah, it's mine. Let me show you the, like, reveal the curtain behind. And they still don't trust that. So really, I just went, went through and built this tech and self-funded it instead, instead of waiting on the hands of, um, of investors to give me validation. I mm -hmm. said my community needs it the most, so I'm going to invest in myself to be able to provide these resources to my community that need it, really yeah. needed the most. Uh, but it's, it's so hard for you to compete with all those big fish who are getting millions of dollars. It's not fair. We're still making it too hard for brilliant minds like yourself to like succeed and thrive. And I'm really hoping that there are other like people who are even higher levels of influence than I am who can do something. Like I know an investor in, he has a company called Div Inc. Um, definitely, I, I can send you these, all these things I'm sharing with you, the Cardiff model diving later, but he is in, based in Austin, Texas. He's only doing work there right now. So he's lifting a lot of like black and brown people there and their ideas and he's investing in them. It's just, that's only in Austin. Like, I don't know, I don't know what, what's here. I know that there is, um, let me, give me a second. Uh -huh. Ah, it's like, I I3, like innovation, inclusion, innovation, yeah, incubation. Yep, in three. Yeah. Yep, yep, Inc3. It's in DC. It's near Howard. So I know that they exist. I don't know all the things they do, but there are a couple places. It's just also they're start they're very startup. So yeah. there's so, starting so, that thing. So in three, check it out though. In three itself, the, um, Aaron Saunders is the founder. And, yeah. And he he started this and got in and got up um support from the mayor mayor of dc and howard and they've never yeah. and he's never received outside funding zero private venture capital wow that's the issue with brown and black i'm like why is a brilliant guy yeah i think he got his his mba from nyu he's been in tech very brilliant so respectable work for respectable companies and he's been treated that way zero private investment only from Howard, people that look like us, that represent us, that support it, and the mayor of DC. Otherwise, he's gotten no investment in, in three years since he started in three. So it's, it's a journey, and we have to be persistent. We have to be try ingenuity um, and not rely on Captain Save Me to come and save the day. Um, and what, like, as, as you mentioned, work together. Um, sometimes they will come. This is a time for them to actually come. This is a time for investment yeah. dollars to be positioned for black and brown. Um, so for us to actually hear your voice and it matters. Not just for you to say black lives matters, great, you post a picture. We don't want that. I don't want that. And Mo, I, there, there's a reason I didn't post. And a lot of people were like, where's this stream? Where's the this? I'm like, listen, I saw what it was. Yesterday was a festival. Honestly, honest to God, it was mostly a festival, which is good. Like, yep. we deserve it. We, we changed the freaking name of the road that leads to the White House. Trump's got to see that every day. Black Lives. But, <laughs> I don't want to just be there. I just want to be there just posting selfies. And 
I, it just didn't feel right. I'm like, mm, this is, I don't want to use this just as a gimmick thing. Like I'm actually trying to be here to do work. So I let everyone else have their fun, have their festivities. Like it, yes, you should celebrate. It's just, I don't feel right posting things. Like, oh yeah. For the movement. Like I just don't feel like good about it. It feels like I'm being opportunistic. And, and that's, that's the thing is allies cannot be opportunistic. You cannot use this as an opportunity. So I'm very grateful. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast, but we can't use this as an opportunity to like amplify our voice when our black brothers and sisters don't have their voice amplified yet. And I, I just want to help whatever I can do. I'm here. I'm here to help. Cause nothing's going to work if I can't be working with you to make this better. Though my white brothers and sisters up here ain't going to help me. They're not helping me. So like, that's a, the thing is I was on, um, I was on a Facebook live again, most of these things I've been invited to, or you and I had already discussed me coming on the show, but you know, most of these I've been invited. I haven't infringed and been like, Oh, please let me be famous. Like, I don't really care. I don't care about any of that. I don't want to be famous. I don't want any of that stuff. I don't want it. I just want to do what's right. And, 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 and that's what, and that's the authenticity, right? You are not a true ally. You went out there, you wanted your voice to be shared. And that voice itself for, a, for a, an ally, a female to be kicked. The trauma behind that, to be kicked. Just for advocating. Um, just for advocating. For a female like yourself, right, to be kicked just for advocating, it's so frustrating to see that you as a, as a female out there protesting for the right thing. You're not out there protesting for anything else that was self, self-driven. self You're protesting for... Hello? Hey. Yeah, you were... You're breaking up. You were saying it's so frustrating, and that's when you started breaking up. That's when I break up. That's okay. Um, you are. I can't see you. There you are. There you are. So the point. So it, it is super, super frustrating for an ally like yourself, who is who to put their life at risk, go out there and represent the community with your voice, and then get kicked as a female. Um, the abuse to take that, and yeah. now you don't you have to. Seen, you around me. They wanted to punch them in the face. They're like, "Oh heck no! You just kicked that girl!" Like they were so mad, and I had to be like, "I, I stood up, but I wasn't gonna run away." I stood up, I was like, "No, brother, like just link up with me," and we linked up. I was like, "I know this is messed up, but you, you'll get shot." So no, I, I want you alive. Yeah, <laughs> it was just. I'll get kicked to the face. It's fucked up, but you'll, sorry for my language, but you're going to get shot. So no. But it's, it's the frustrating piece that. It's like, how do we move on from here? We're going to take time to heal one. We're going to take time. Healing is healing takes time. Policies need, need to, need to, need to, need to changes need to happen. But I think what allies are currently doing like yourself, hand in hand, really allowing your voice to be heard alongside us matters. That matters a lot. So the, the celebration, in the moment of trauma, celebrate a little as well and bring that joy yeah. to yourself. So that's the reason why the, the community, but community of color, black community, black men like ourselves and others, well, we love to dance. Because it just brings joy. Where, is, uh, where else are we gonna find joy if we don't bring it to ourselves? So 
that's part of the healing process. Um, and of course, y'all have that. Y'all have that rhythm and everything. So <laughs> it is the rhythm process. It is part of the the healing process, and then we take it part of that. You're you're talking to a counselor right now. So every person, I really hope that it becomes cheaper for individuals individuals to see a provider um, to get the care that they need. Um, we're doing that exactly. in, in of cares. Um, I mean, I, I've had organizations um, that have come to me, providers that, that say, hey, um, I want to provide healthcare overseas. Um, what are you going to do about it? Um, can, can, we, can we use your platform? I was like, hey, you can use our, pl our platform for free. Um, but just, just because that is my heart. Um, if someone in Haiti needs healthcare, what, what am I going to do? Charge them? No. Because I have been there. I've been in Haiti. I went to Haiti. I went to DR to provide care yeah. to women with a Zika virus. But I know that it's not profitable. So um, you're providing like telemedicine in a way? Like, tele, like if, yeah, if people are getting... Yeah. Yeah. You, you qualify right now. This is the thing. People don't even know. But you right now, and I don't know too much about it, but CMS has provided expansion of telemedicine services and should be reimbursing people who provide a platform. And there's a whole process. I don't know how easy it is. It probably isn't easy because nothing ever is. And <laughs> this is created, but you technically should qualify for like, I don't know how much money, but you do qualify. Just, you know, just so you know that anyone who's providing telehealth qualifies. So the so providers get reimbursed, right? You know that reimbursement. Providers, so do telehealth providers. I think software providers so that 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 that's new knowledge that we we we, we should get qualified or get funding by cms i do not know that but um but i think loopholes i'll send you some resources that that we i'm not an expert in this so i don't know all the details but i'll send you some resources that we have i know that it is very provider focused but i think if you're also providing the platform you should be able to get reimbursed if it's not from CMS, it might be from the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, which is an HHS. Um, I'll see what I can find, because I know we've, we've gathered some materials. I'll see what I can send you later this week. Sure. So this is, I mean, this is really a, a thought-provoking conversation, truly around what health disparity means for the Black and brown communities and how ally can come and alongside us to affect change. I really do appreciate your authentic story because I think people like yourself, their stories need to be heard, right? They need to be amplified because if an ally is going to get kicked in the face, imagine a black man who's like, okay, we're, we're not going to even regard you. You're out. <laughs> we're going to shoot you and you're going to be one of those lost kids. It's okay. Um, you're not going to, your life don't matter. And guess what? Because we have this policy in place that says reasonableness. It, you, you, I, was, I felt intimidated by you. So I'm going to shoot you. And I'm, not gonna, I'm never going to get convicted. I'm going to get a slap on the wrist. Um, so allies like yourself matters. Um, so I really, truly appreciate you being on the call and just really sharing your story. I appreciate you providing the platform. And, and you know, I want to thank you. Like, you're brilliant you're smart like no one should ever tell you you're not they don't know what they're talking about our state of well-being decides our rate of productivity this is why the health of your employees are important to you like that of an athlete is important to the coach even though the access to health care is sometimes unaffordable and time-consuming for most people 
Marie still cares about her employees' well-being, so she signs everyone up on Innov Cares. Innov Cares is a telehealth and wellness platform that brings affordable healthcare services to people wherever they are. Marie's employees do not need to wait in line to book an appointment with a doctor. All they have to do is grab their phone and get connected to a doctor or any healthcare provider at just a few clicks. They have access to health specialists at the very best price and get the very best lifestyle tips to avoid chronic diseases. Matt, on the other hand, is a soccer coach and has all his players signed up on Innov Cares. Apart from getting the best healthy lifestyle tips, they get connected to the right healthcare provider in case they get an injury and the recovery process is being followed up. Get rewards, join the health tribe, connect health devices, tick your action list and spend more time with the healthcare team with Innov Cares. Download your Innov Cares app on Google Play Store or Apple Store now.